The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. All right, very good. Um, so we're back, um, continuing through our study of Presbyterian history in America. Uh, we're in the middle of the 1800s at this point. Um, before we continue on this lesson, I wanted to make two statements about last week. One is Matthew um, interjected that the Presbyterian Church in Brazil is 7 million members. It's actually 700,000 members, so it's a tenth the size that he thought. We wanted to make that correction. I did look up what, what, church it, what Presbyterian churches around the world are bigger than the PCUSA today. Um, the PCUSA is 1.4 million or something at this point, I think, communicant members. <clears throat> and there are about 10 Presbyterian churches around the world that are bigger than the, the, the PCUSA. The biggest is the Presbyterian Church of East Africa, 4 million members. Um, that's Kenya and sur- surrounding countries. Presbyterian Church of Nigeria, Presbyterian Church of Africa, National Presbyterian Church in Mexico. Um, three branches of the Presbyterian Church in Korea. The Presbyterian Church in Korea is enormous, but it's also gone through significant um, division over the last 100 years. Uh, but three of the branches in Korea are bigger than the PCUSA, uh, as well as the, the Church of Christ in Congo, um, which is a, is a Presbyterian denomination in Congo. So all those, all those churches are bigger than the PCUSA. And so the, the, um, these churches are millions of people. We, it's good to remember in the OPC, uh, we're, we're very proud of ourselves for being OPC. We're about 30,000 people, and we have been for a while. The OPC has, has never grown uh, very significantly um, from, I, mean, it's, I think it started in, in the thousands of people, 5,000 or something, um, uh, in 1936, up till now only about... Uh, 30,000 people, and I don't know, I'm sure that some of these churches um, are, are liberal churches, but at least, at least some of them are, are conservative, faithful, Bible-believing Presbyterians, um, and there are many other churches like that bigger than us. India has an enormous number of Presbyterians. Um, there, there are a lot of Presbyterians in the world that are not in, in the West and are, are not white um, or not English-speaking. It's just good for us to remember um, it's actually, you can pray this week is a meeting of the uh, ICRC, the International, is Matt in here? Council of Reformed Churches, I think. Um, so that's uh, an international uh, kind of body of uh, conservative Presbyterians, and they're meeting in, in Southern Africa, uh, in Namibia, this week, I believe. Uh, you can pray for that as they meet together, including representatives from the OPC. Um, one other thing, Denise uh, Groover had asked about how did Thornwell um, argue on behalf, like argue for board um, commissions instead of boards for these denominational uh, bodies? And I looked briefly into that, and basically his argument is an argument from the regulative principle that if you start to add these boards of non-ordained members, um, you essentially add a, a, a new form of church government that isn't outlined in Scripture. Um, so it's more of an argument that, that Scripture doesn't... Uh, Scripture does give us a form of government for the church, and, and that form of government is that the church is um, led by its ministers and elders, and not by this uh, separate organization, and ultimately you kind of form kind of separate offices. Okay, um, oh, there's one other question about um, uh, the Covenanters' take on the Civil War. I couldn't find anything about the Covenanters on their view on secession, um, but I think I had mentioned before it's just interesting. Twice during the war, representatives from the, the RPCNA met with Abraham Lincoln to 
uh, encourage him to end slavery, as well as to encourage him to um, add a constitutional amendment acknowledging the lordship of Christ. And Lincoln actually, in a speech at one point, started to, um, he had written a speech where he was going to advocate for a, 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 a constitutional amendment about the lordship of Christ. And the, his political advisors said, you're crazy, don't do that. And he took it out. It was very interesting um, history there. Um, okay, so remember 1837, the, the mainline church, the old school and new school divide into two churches in 1857, 20 years later, we talked about last week, the new school, in, or the old school, sorry, the, um, in the north, um, sorry, I'm getting it all mixed up. The new school divides north and south in 1857, four years before the Civil War starts. Reminder for those of us who went to public school, Civil War is 1861 to 1865. Um, so the new school divides four years before that war, uh, in 1861, shots are fired at Fort Sumter. The Civil War begins. <laughs> a month later, uh, the General Assembly of the Old School meets. So South Carolina has already declared secession, I believe. Shots are fired at, at um, Fort Sumter, and yet this church north and south meets together, the Old School um, Assembly. A minister from New York City named Gardner Spring, um, who's a very, very godly minister. He had served in New York City, I think, for 40 years. Um, he pushes these resolutions called, that are now known as the Gardner Spring Resolutions, encouraging um, churches to strengthen, uphold, and encourage the federal government. Um, during the debate over these resolutions, um, something very interesting happens that it's almost hard to get your mind around, but an argument, against, uh, an argument that's given against supporting the Gardner Springs Resolution is um, some say... The best thing we can do for the unity of the nation is to not support um, these resolutions that are essentially going to divide the nation. So if, if we want to unify the nation, we, we shouldn't make everyone vow to support the federal government, essentially. Um, but they go beyond that, and um, th- there's actually uh, uh, telegram correspondence with representatives from the White House, from cabinet members, where they're asking, hey, should the old school divide, or should the old school support this resolution saying we'll support the federal government and what would that do or not do um, for the well-being of our nation. Um, And uh, the first person they heard back from was the Attorney General, Edward Bates. Um, And Bates says, uh, he basically says, don't don't support the Gardner Springs resolution. He says, I believe for myself decidedly and I believe for other members of cabinet. Um, and then they hear from Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, um, who says, cannot properly advise, but perceive no valid objection to unequivocal expressions in favor of the Constitution, Union, and freedom. Um, so he's saying, support these Gardner Spring resolutions. But it's just, it's, it's almost unbelievable to me to think about, you know, today the equivalent would be like these guys sitting at the OPC General Assembly, you know, texting, uh, I, I don't know any modern cabinet members, Texting Hillary Clinton, like, should we support this uh, this resolution? Um, and and that was used as an argument on the floor. Um, ultimately, Gardner Springs resolutions won the day, and so the old schoolers in the South felt that they could not um, they could not follow these resolutions where they were to give their full support to the federal government. You can certainly imagine those in South Carolina; the state had already seceded. Um, was not going to be able to do that. 
Um, so December 4th, 1861 in Augusta, Georgia, the, the old school started a new church. I mentioned before that's the church of Woodrow Wilson's father pastored at the time. Um, and so in 25 years, one church, the, the mainline Presbyterian church, had gone from one body to, to four um, separate bodies. Um, and I, I thought, you know, when is, when, is the, when is Presbyterian most fractured in the United States? I think this is probably one of the, the uh, leading candidates for that. So you have four branches of the mainline church, old school, new school, north and south. Um, you have the RPCNA is divided into two branches over their relationship to the Constitution. Um, you have the ARP in the south. You have the United Presbyterians in the north, which are kind of the ARP of the north. Um, you have the, the Cumberland Presbyterians, Ar- Arminians in, out in Kentucky and Virgi- uh, Tennessee. Um, the little remaining associate synod that didn't join the ARP or later the, the uh, United Presbyterian Church. So you have a, a bunch of different groups uh, at this time um, during the war. So the Civil War, as we know, becomes I mean, literally a war of brother against brother. There are um, families fighting one another in the war, um, but certainly spiritually you have um, Christians, many Christians on both sides uh, fighting together. Fighting together and against one another. Um, from the Northern Church, Old and New School, you have, uh, they've counted, historians have counted 270 ministers that served as chaplains uh, during the war. And from the, the Southern Old School, at least 130 different ministers would have served as chaplains during the war. Um, there's a lot of uh, records of revival that actually happens among the, in, within the troops um, during the war, um, uh, including some led by, by Presbyterians. Um, a very um, intense uh, religious undertones all, all throughout the Civil War, but seemingly some very real conversions and, and religious revival. Um, probably one of the most prominent um, chaplains that we know of in Presbyterianism during the war was Robert Dabney, who we talked about um, last week, Robert Dabney serves as a chaplain to a probably the most famous Presbyterian general of the war, who is Stonewall Jackson, uh, Southern general. Um, Stonewall Jackson was born into a Presbyterian family in Virginia, in what's now Clarksburg, West Virginia, in kind of northern West Virginia. Um, he had fought in war with Mexico and um, went back to become an instructor at the Virginia Military Institute. Uh, in Lexington, Virginia. Um, Stonewall Jackson was uh, someone, one of these men who cared very much for the spiritual well-being of, of blacks and of slaves. Um, he organized Sunday school classes as early as 1855 uh, for um, black members uh, of their church or, or blacks in the, the community there in Lexington. Um, he was known to love his students and desire to have them know the gospel and be instructed in scripture. Um, <clears throat> He was also married twice, just kind of interesting. Both, both of his wives uh, were daughters of Presbyterian ministers in the South. Um, the, his, his first wife died. Her father um, was actually the minister who was on the prosecution for Albert Barnes at the, back in the, the, the New School controversy. So he was, he was kind of connected to the who's who in, the, in Southern Presbyterianism. Um, <clears throat> he was on the old school side. Um, yeah, and in uh, 1857, as many people know, he was actually elected as a deacon 
Uh, so four years before the war, he was elected as a deacon in this church where he served there. And then he dies um, through friendly fire during the war. I wanted to talk about, a little bit about the church in Raleigh um, during the war, just to give you both a, you know, a local picture and then just a little bit of understanding of, um, you know, we can think about this in the big picture. This is often the case in studying uh, church history. You can think about the big picture of um, conflict, of you know, the actions of general assemblies, all these different things. Um, but day to day, what's happening even during the war is churches are meeting together and they're worshiping God uh, together and they're seeking to be faithful Christians in their homes and in their church. Um, um, and it's, it's harder to kind of share that narrative in, in the whole, but it, it's helpful, I think, to look at individual churches and see what happens. And there's a very interesting history of uh, First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh um, uh, called A Cloud of Witnesses. It's written by a Campbell University history professor, actually, um, that I, I've enjoyed reading. So from 1836 to 1855, so stepping back a little bit, the, the first pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh um, was a man named Drury Lacey, who was uh, the son of Drury Lacey, same name, um, the, a man who was president of Hamden Sydney College, which is in Virginia, just a couple, couple of hours north um, of here, uh, in the middle of the country uh, in Virginia. Um, kind of aside, but Matthew and I actually went up to visit there a few years ago um, just to see it. It's where Union Seminary, which is now in Richmond, started prominent. Southern Presbyterian Seminary, um, but it, it was a very important institution in the early 1800s as it um, was a way to teach young men, um, many ministers uh, in, in the Southern Presbyterian context, um, and where, among other things, they didn't want all their young men to have to go north to New Jersey to, to study at Princeton, um, so it was a very prominent uh, school. Across the street from it is actually a church called College, I think called College Presbyterian Church, it's another one of the congregations that R.L. Dabney, Robert Dabney, designed the building. Um, and Dabney, with many Presbyterians at the time, especially many Southern Presbyterians, was opposed to the use of instruments in worship. They sung a cappella. Uh, an interesting thing about that building is Dabney, um, according to the story, specifically designed this building so that no one could put an organ inside the church because that was what was starting to happen, people putting organs in the church. Um, and I think 18... 70s or 80s, 90s, maybe late 1800s, the church finally decided they wanted an organ, and they, you can go inside this church, and it has a, um, you know, wraparound uh, balcony, a gallery, and they um, completely disassembled an organ to carry it through the door, which Dabney, like, made it as inconvenient as possible, but they disassembled this organ and assembled it inside the church. Just kind of interesting. Um, Dabney and and Jarrett both wrote, uh, very, um, I think, uh, compelling arguments against use of instruments in church. I mean, it's worth wrestling it with in today when we mostly take that for granted. Um, sorry, that, that, was, that was totally aside. So Drury Lacey's son is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Raleigh. He steps down in 1855. Um, he, he becomes the president of Davidson College, which forms a little bit later, but also a very prominent institution, Southern Presbyterianism. Uh, my my uh, grandfather graduated from there. Would have been um, like 1938 or something. Um, that was where, kind of where you went if you were a, a, a Southern Presbyterian man of that era. Um, so this is in 1855. He becomes president of Davidson. That's just north of Charlotte in Davidson, North Carolina. Um, 
So in December 1855, a 35-year-old Joseph Atkinson becomes the new pastor of the church, um, and he's the one who will serve through the, the Civil War. He's a graduate of Princeton Seminary, the, the you know, old school uh, seminary. He's an old school man. Um, a contemporary of Atkinson said, pulpit ministrations of Mr. Atkinson were not calculated to produce great excitement and sudden reformation, but rather to lay those deep foundations of doctrinal truth so absolutely essential to all true godliness and Christian youthful, usefulness. So, you can imagine he could, he could be an OPC minister, probably. Um, not that our pastors don't have great excitement from the pulpit. Um, so in, in November of 1865, uh, the Synod of Carolina withdraws from the old school church. It's actually a month before a an old school church in the South. It's called the, the uh, Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of, the, of America, I think. Uh, that's formed in December, so a month before the Senate of North Carolina withdraws, including the First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh. Um, during the war, he, like many ministers, published two sermons um, that were distributed among soldiers. There, in Raleigh, there was a, a, kind of a parachurch group called the General Tract Agency that... I don't know if it predated the war, but during the war, they published um, of interdenominational materials that were then distributed among soldiers, um, which was, it was a, a big undertaking. There was lots and lots of material that was distributed um, among soldiers. The, here's a quote from the, the book about First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh about one of the tracts. It says, This tract attempted to encourage the suffering soldier by suggesting that all of God's faithful suffer afflictions at times and that true godliness does not require us to deny we are afflicted when God has laid his heavy hand upon us. Atkinson suggested, When afflictions come, it is not enough that we bear a burden. We must cast our burden upon the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord during times of suffering shall be sustained. As one might expect, Atkinson also included an evangelistic appeal in this tract for the suffering soldier who might not be a believer. He suggested that in the gospel, there is encouragement for those most deeply dejected and hope of full immortality for the most despondent. Um, By all accounts, he was a very godly man uh, who uh, was a faithful pastor here in Raleigh uh, through this era. Um, He, like many in the South, uh, very quickly became a supporter of secession. Um, and he uh, said that the war was a spontaneous uprising of a whole people to repel lawless and atheistic aggressions. Um, so you can judge for yourself on that one. Um, again, quoting from uh, this book about First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh, he said, God, si- God sided with the Confederacy, according to Atkinson, because, the South's mo- because of the South's moral superiority. It was inconceivable that God would not be supportive of the, of the Confederacy because the Southern cause was identical to that of the Founding Fathers and the American Revolution. Just as they broke off from the tyranny of England, so the South was breaking off from the tyranny of the federal government. Um, I think that's probably a pretty uh, common view. It's not... Um, they're not separating their uh, theological views from their view of what the, the, the states are doing at this time. And they, on both sides, you see a lot of Christians confident that God is supportive of their, their side. 
Um, there were black members of First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh as early as 1857. Um, after the war, um, at least some of the blacks began to meet separately. You can imagine after the Civil War, um, when slaves were emancipated, they might not want to continue to worship in the, the churches that they may have worshipped with in before, uh, if they worshipped in, in white churches with you know, potentially former slave owners. Um, so you see at that time, uh, so we, you, we have still today the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's the black Methodist church that uh, met where the black Methodists split off. Um, you have uh, black Baptist groups that form. The Cumberland Presbyterians split into... Um, uh, a, a black Cumberland church that is also still around today. Although I just looked recently, the, the Cumberland Presbyterians that still remain, the black and white churches are, are looking to merge together. Um, you have um, in Anglicanism or Episcopalism, Episcopal Church, um, a lot of churches in the South that were black groups j- left the mainline Episcopal Church and joined uh, what's called the Reformed Episcopal Church, which is a historically a more conservative um, branch of American uh, Episcopalianism that is now part of ACNA, the, the big um, Anglican church that's formed over the last few years. Um, I actually visited somewhat unintentionally a black uh, Reformed Episcopal Church um, outside uh, Charleston, South Carolina a few years ago. Well, I guess a lot of years ago now, 2009 probably. Um, and it was a very surprising mix of um, what you might expect at like a black church and what you might get in an, in an Episcopal church. And um, it's because the the um, the mainline Episcopal church wasn't having black ministers, etc. And the the Reformed Episcopal church was open to that. So you get a lot of reshuffling as as uh, these freed black Christians are looking uh, to worship God, and as well as potentially to have black ministers and church officers. So um, here in Raleigh, First Presbyterian Church, some of these, or, or maybe all the, the records are not totally clear, but uh, the, the black members of the church start to meet separately. Um, by 1872, so jumping forward a little bit, um, they start meeting as a, as a new congregation that is not part of the Southern Presbyterian Church, but part of the Northern Presbyterian Church, which forms uh, a, a board of missions for freedmen and comes to the South and helps blacks plant churches that are able to have black ministers, which, which the Southern Church was um, slow to do. Uh, it was initially called Presbyterian Church Colored, very simple name. Uh, it's now Davie Street Presbyterian Church, which you can still see in Raleigh. Uh, it's a block south of Moore Square. Uh, there's still a, a building there. It's a fairly modern um, building, but uh, it's still there. Um, they have a black female pastor now, and we just looked yesterday, about 30 or 40 people still go to church there. Um, that's, that's the people who left, initially the people who left First Presbyterian Church of Raleigh to, to form that church. Um, there was one other church in the Raleigh area, Presbyterian Church in the Raleigh area prior to the war. It's actually uh, in the, the Milburney area, um, out by the old Milburney Milburney Dam, so kind of past where the Holes live. If you go out uh, there, or, or the wards, kind of uh, in between here and um, 540, or maybe just outside of 540, I don't know, right along the Noose River. Um, the war seemed to have really hit that church hard, and by 1871, it had three members left, and they uh, joined First Presbyterian Church, and it dissolved. Um, I'm not sure when, you know, of the other Presbyterian churches 
that our PCUSA church is now in Raleigh, when the next one would have come, um, but it doesn't seem like until the 1930s or something. Matthew. Oh, interesting. He says there's a minister who plants uh, 12, 12 churches from, that, from First Presbyterian Church. So there is one other church that forms and then doesn't make it. I'll tell you a little bit about that because I just think it's kind of interesting. Um, in, in the 1870s, again, we're, we're jumping ahead here to talk about Raleigh. There's a property dispute, it seems, between two members of the church. They, the two members of this church end up taking this dispute to the civil courts. It causes a big divide in the church. People seem to take sides. There's another issue, 1877. The church is electing new officers, and there's somehow a big confusion about how many officers they're going to be electing. Um, That increases the tensions in the church. In 1875, so two years before that, the pastor, Atkinson, who had been there during the war, had stepped down seemingly for health reasons. Um, But then in 1877, two years after that, um, people in the church start raising money and petitioning the Presbytery, which was Orange Presbytery, um, to form a new church in Raleigh. And then uh, it turns out Atkinson, who had stepped down two years before, was going to be the pastor of this new church, which you can imagine caused some consternation. Um, In April of 1877, the Orange Presbytery approved this new church. Um, The session of First Presbyterian was not happy with this. Um... They said it would crystallize these hostile feelings, give them organic life, and render them permanent for an indefinite time in the future. It would create two feeble churches, not coordinate, but rival institutions, necessarily antagonistic to each other, and a permanent source of irritation. So, um, splanting is not a a new uh, thing in Presbyterianism. Um, Yeah. and yet, the church goes on to be formed, the Presbytery approves it, and the, the session of First Presbyterian, in fact, allows the congregation to, uh, this new congregation to use their building for their organizational services. So, an offer of goodwill, it seems, from the this, this session. Um, probably the most famous member of Second Presbyterian Church was Governor Zebulon Vance, um, who we have many things named after uh, today. He was the governor during the war. Um, it seems that he had married a, a godly Presbyterian woman and, but was not particularly interested in religion. But she dies, uh, I think, at a relatively young age. And um, almost immediately after her death, he, he joins this church and is a member there. Uh, they built a building uh, that I think is now a parking lot on the northeast side of downtown, kind of uh, just south of like Peace College, um, sort of where the new, the big white uh, Anglican church is now. Um, but the church failed to grow beyond, it seems, maybe 40 people. And by 1890, the 1890s, people started to go back to First Presbyterian Church, and it eventually dissolved as a congregation. And then I think you don't get another um, mainline church in Raleigh for another maybe 40 years. Okay, um, so back to the, the war. When the war began, the old school church in the South, immediately started to talk about union with the New School in the South. So the, the New School had split off four years before the war. Uh, and it was a tiny group, I mean, in the thousands of people, maybe 80 churches or something like that. Um, uh, James Henley Thornwell really opposed this union um, with, the old, with the New School. 
but he dies during the war, 1862. So 1863, again, still during the war, the old school assembly in the South appoints a committee led by Robert Dabney to talk about union with the new school. Um, Dabney uh, really supported this union, at least in part, because um, he was afraid if they didn't join with the new school, the new school would form their own seminary and start getting stronger. And so it was uh, kind of hold your friends close and your enemies closer. Um, and so he, Dabney is really the one who saw this through. Um, other conservatives insisted that the union only come with a repudiation of the new school views, um, which seemingly happened. They had art, these articles of union um, that stated things against the new school views, like it is dangerous to ply the disordered heart of the sinner with a disproportionate address to the imagination and passions and to employ with him such novel and startling measures as must tend to impart his religious excitement, a character rather noisy, shallow, and transient than deep, solid, and scriptural. So this is saying uh, it's un- it, you can't be like Charles Finley, Finney. You can't manipulate people's emotions into being believers. You um, uh, need to see deep, solid, and scriptural conversion. He says... The articles say, but on the other hand, we cherish, value, and pray for true revivals of religion, and wherever they bring forth permanent fruits of holiness in men's hearts, rejoice in them as God's work, notwithstanding the mixture of human imperfections. And we consider it the solemn duty of ministers to exercise a scriptural warmth, affection, and directness in appealing to the understanding hearts and consciences of men. So in 1864, a year before the war ends, the, the new school and the old school in the South Um, finally um, reunite after um, the division initially happened in in, uh, 1837. So we're 25 years later or so, almost 30 years later. Um, After the war, this body takes the name of the Presbyterian Church in the United States. So in the North, we're later going to get the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, so for a long time, you have the PCUSA in the north, and then in the south, you have the PCUS, the southern church. Um, this United Church in the south has about 65,000 members uh, and about um, 1,300 churches. So in the south, the PCUS, the, PCUS, the southern church, um, is not actually that big, even though it becomes very prominent in American life. Um, in the north, the church is about seven times bigger, so... The, the northern church, um, significantly larger. I, I'm really interested in kind of understanding, you know, we can talk about these churches, but it's helpful to understand what's the scale and size of these different churches. But um, at this time, it seems that about 1% of Presbyterians on the whole, in total, uh, 1% of Americans, sorry, were Presbyterians. Um, and I was actually just thinking about that this morning. I think that's actually probably about true today. You have somewhere on the order of... Um, you know, two to three million Presbyterians and 300,000 people, 300 million people. Gareth? They call that, in 1865, they take the name Presbyterian Church in the United States. After the war ends, yeah. During the war, they're the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America. The, someone else can think about the acronym. I can't do that on the fly. So as of, well, so 
at the end of the war, you still in the north have two churches. You have the old school and the new school. In the south, at the end of the war, you just have one church, the Southern Presbyterian Church. The new school, in the north, the old school continues to debate slavery throughout the war. Um, many on the border states were sympathetic um, to the south, um, and the debates really continue about how to handle all these things. Um, the old school and the new school unite finally in the, in the north in 1869, four years after the war ends. Uh, part of what allows that to happen is after the war ends, um, many of the um, churches uh, in the border states, I think particularly Missouri and um, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, join, they leave the old school church of the north and they join the Southern Presbyterian Church after the war. And so that um, for, for the, the new schoolers in the north who are more uh, abolitionist, that makes them more open to union with the old school where you have still a lot of division over slavery, even, even in, the, in the north. Um, Charles Hodge is a very vocal opponent to union of the old school and the new school in the north. He is concerned that the new school has still a lax view of confessional subscription. Uh, they had failed to repudiate the views of Albert Barnes, who had, who had really in many ways started this whole controversy and continued as a new school minister. Um, so Charles Hodge really speaks out against this and tries to prevent the union. Uh, I think the new school votes, um, their assembly votes unanimously for union in the old school. There are a handful of holdouts. It's um, you know, seven or eight holdouts out of several hundred men who are, are voting at the assembly. Um, in the next few weeks, we're going to start talking about the Presbyterian controversy, uh, which is going to lead up to the formation of the OPC in 1936. Um, and there's an argument some have tried to make that this is in many ways the, the start of uh, that happening. So um, as of 1869, we have two, two mainline churches again. There's one in the north, one in the, the south. So before the war, they had been divided old school and new school. Now they're divided north and south. Uh, the northern church is what becomes the, the, is the church that the OPC is going to split off of in 1936. The southern church is what the PCA is going to split off in uh, 1973. So just to, to give your expectation of where we're, we're going with that. Um, one of the books I've been reading as a source for this, and I recommend this, this is by two OPC ruling elders, um, Daryl Hart and John Meather, Seeking a Better Country, 300 Years of American Presbyterianism. It attempts to overview what we're doing here, American Presbyterianism. Uh, it's certainly from the perspective of two, two OPC ruling elders. They're both historians. Um, but a, bo- a book I really recommend uh, reading if you want to know more about this. But they argue in their book, after 1869, so that's the Union of the Old and New School in the North, these singularly Presbyterian features would be subordinate to those concerns that united Presbyterians and um, that united Presbyterians to American. Sorry, I'm mixing up my uh, sentence here. These singularly Presbyterian features would be subordinate to these concerns that united Presbyterians to American Protestants with a s- similar allegiance to the United States. Um, so that um, he's saying Presbyterians start to be less distinctively Presbyterian and more American, essentially. As Vanderveld, who's another historian, put it, the Great War, or the Civil War, had turned Presbyterian minds from their ecclesiastical differences 
to their common interest in the salvation of the Union. As important as the Civil War was then for preserving the Union, the war was equally destructive of, of the Presbyterian faith and practice, both old and new school, that had flourished during the middle decades of the 19th century. There are probably many people who would argue with that, but from the perspective of these two men, OPC historians, uh, the war really shifts the thinking of these churches to where um, they're not as concerned about things like what divided the old school and new school or the old side and new side. They're more concerned with furthering the the well-being of the union. Um, So, they would, I think, argue then that this is going to start to lead up to the uh, issues that caused the OPC to split off the Northern Church in 1936. Okay, just a little bit jumping ahead uh, in five minutes, talking about the next um, 20 years or so. Uh, After the war, the South is in bad shape. Uh, Many churches are turned into hospitals. Many men are dead. Uh, Ministers are dead. Um, Many churches are left penniless when their money was in Confederate currency that's no longer worth anything. Uh, the, the, The southern states as well as the church were in pretty rough shape. In the north, we enter what um, we call the Gilded Age, um, as you have great economic flourishing um, uh, through the end of the the 1900s, and probably in many ways leading up until you have the Great Depression in the uh, 1929, I think. Um, So just some things that happened in the Gilded Age. Uh, 1869, four years after the war, the, the Continental Railroad uh, Transcontinental Railroad is completed. Um, 1871, Darwin is publishing The Descent of Man, which is going to, Darwin's works are going to start to have an impact in, within the church and, and without. Uh, 1872, the typewriter's invented. Also in 1872, you get uh, Dwight Moody rising to fame, um, founder of Moody Bible Institute, and in many ways, um, the one who ushers in what we have now is modern American evangelicalism. He Historians have argued he really sets the stage for Billy Graham. Billy Graham really transforms our American religious landscape in a lot of ways. Um, That's a whole other Sunday school class, probably. Uh, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell uh, gets the patent for the telephone. Uh, 1879, Thomas Edison finally has a working light bulb. 1868, the Statue of Liberty goes up. 1888, the Kodak camera is invented or uh, made available. Uh, 1889, this is probably, for North Carolinians, how we can think about the Gilded Age. 1889, the Biltmore Estate is start to be built, right? So that's uh, the fruit of the wealth that comes from the railroad and the wealth that is um, being uh, built in America. Um, 1896, this is not really Gilded Age, but I I think a helpful thing to think about is um, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is a a uh, Supreme Court case that really enshrines um, segregation as legal in the United States, which is uh, basically true until the the 1970s. And then towards the end of this, uh, 1903, you get the Ford Motor Company, obviously going to very much transform America. So this is a time of uh, rapid growth of wealth. It's a time of information being exchanged as we start to get telephones, as we get trains moving across the country. It's a time of urbanization. Uh, Cities really start to be uh, filled as, as people leave farms after the war, move to cities and work in factories and things like that. Uh, you can imagine that takes a great impact on churches that um, you know, often would have been rural. 
all your young people live, leave and go to the city, that's going to impact your churches. Um, the Northern Church sends a, a minister named Sheldon Jackson out to the West as superintendent for missions to Western Iowa, Nebraska, Dakota, Iowa, Montana, Wyoming, and Utah. So the, the nation is moving West and the church is trying to keep up with it. Um, he, he moves as the railroad uh, moves west, and he helps plant uh, as many as 100 churches among what he says, the tidal wave of wickedness, the cesspools of iniquity, and the desperados. Um, so, you know, if you think about Western movies, John Wayne movies, this is the era of Western movies. Um, and, you know, I, I can't attest to all the, the accuracy of the things that you see in these little Western towns as, um, as the train takes people west. Um, but seemingly this is attesting to at least some of that wickedness and there's a desire to see uh, the gospel go forth as well. At the same time, um, you continue to see Presbyterians, and this is kind of confirming what Hart and Meether say, um, seeking more um, uh, interdenominational, ecumenical relationships for the well-being of, of the gospel and, and of the nation. Um, the Northern Church unites with something called the Evangelical Alliance, which is this... Um, uh, cross-denominational church fellowship body, as well as this Presbyterian Alliance, which is a, a similar thing, but for Presbyterians. Um, and the Evangelical Alliance is, is concerned with the atheism of the day as they perceived immorality, as well as Roman Catholicism. You're having a lot of immigration at this time as well. You're getting uh, Im- um, Catholics from Ireland, from uh, Italy, and, and there's a big concern among Protestants about what to do about all the Catholics. Um, Hart and Meether basically argue and this is probably a debatable point, but the, the new school vision has won the day at this point. The new school seeking this bigger ecumenical vision. Robert Dabney, as you might uh, not be surprised, is not swept away by this. He says of the Presbyterian Alliance, um, there is little difference between a pope in singular and a pope in the plural number. The essential doctrine of popery will appear. The same arguments which demand that Presbyterian churches will be unified in a visible center, so uniting all the Presbyterians together, will necessarily be extended to others recognized as true churches, though non-Presbyterian. Thus will come still a wider confederation, not pan-Presbyterian, but pan-Protestant. And, necessary, and the necessary condition of its existence will be precisely that combination of loose, unfaithful, doctrinal, broad churchism with a tyrannical enforcement of outward union and uniformity, which now characterizes popery. So he's saying, as we try to unite all the um, Pres- Protestants together, we're going to lose our distinctives as Presbyterians. And um, he was 100% right. J. Gresham Machen sees this exact thing happen in the 1920s. There's an attempt to unite all the Protestant denominations in North America under one church. And uh, that is essentially what leads Machen to write Christiani- Christianity and Liberalism, um, which is kind of the radicalization of Machen that is uh, that's in 1923, and then 13 years later, the OPC is formed. So Dabney's vision, at least from the perspective of us in the OPC, is 100% on, uh, and, and he was very perceptive. Um, I mentioned briefly, and uh, I, I won't go into this, but there is a, a lot of debate over Darwin and, and Darwin's teaching uh, even in the South, uh, a, there's a professor of natural history at Columbia Seminary, the big Southern Presbyterian Seminary, um, who's the uncle of Woodrow Wilson, uh, his mother's brother, I think. Um, and he actually starts to teach evolution 
and teach that evolution and, and the Bible are compatible. And that causes a big um, controversy in, in, in the Southern Church and in the seminary that leads to a trial up to the General Assembly. Uh, and he's eventually booted out of his teaching position, although he's a minister uh, in the Southern Church and becomes president of um, the University of South Carolina and, and remains in good standing as a minister. There's also a lot, also a whole class on its own of how um, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield are also trying to wrestle with what do we do with these new teachings that are coming uh, through Darwin and his followers. Um, and, you know, again, arguably things leading up, adding to the uh, uh, issues that we'll see arise in the Presbyterian controversy. Um, if anyone wants to read more about that, I'm not going to talk more about that, but I'd be happy to, to point you to some sources on that. All right, um, 12 o'clock, again, if you need to pick up kids, do that. But if anybody has questions, I'd be happy to answer questions.